Well, today we begin a new season in the life of our church. Dave Doyle is just the third staff pastor in the 25-year history of our church, and we look forward to seeing how the Lord will bless his ministry among us. And again, I want to encourage you to come out tonight at six o'clock for a night to get to know him and Carla. There will be certainly at that public time where we'll uh, interview them publicly and then time of fellowship where you can greet them personally and and spend some time with them. We won't be able to live stream it, by the way, uh, but uh, we will record it and post that recording. Uh, But don't let that discourage you from coming tonight. One of the benefits of having Dave here and therefore having two staff pastors is that we'll be able to uh, divide responsibilities in a way that enables us to have more consistency in the pulpit. For almost a year, we've had a steady stream of guest pastors uh, who have served us so faithfully. And I am so thankful to the Lord for the Master's Fellowship, uh, this network of like-minded churches and pastors uh, that we really consider to be our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just in the general sense that they're part of the universal body of Christ, but in a more intimate, personal, relational way. And we're, we've been so blessed to have them minister to us uh, consistently over the last year. But it's well known that a a vital component to the long-term health of a local church is consistency uh, in the pulpit. And especially, it is the Lord's design that those whom He has placed to be the pastors, elders over the church, be the primary ones to minister the Word to God's people. And so, in light of that, until we hire a new senior pastor, our current plan Uh, with Dave here, is to uh, allow me to uh, fill the pulpit more consistently, and then with Dave and others uh, continuing to fill the pulpit on occasion as well. Well, another uh, aspect of the new season of the life of our church is the fact that we get to start a new study in the Word of God today. One of our most strongly held convictions as a church, which Pastor Leek just you know instilled so uh, so firmly, is a strong conviction to to preach the Word of God to the people of God. That's what preaching is. It's not life coaching. It's not helpful talks. It is preaching the Word of God to the people of God. And the way we believe that is most effectively done is when you preach verse by verse through books of the Bible so that you get the whole Word of God, not just what the preacher prefers to preach on. If you want to know more about why that's not just a practical conviction, but it's actually a biblical conviction, uh, at our 15th church anniversary, Pastor Lee preached a sermon called God's Charge to Preach Expository Sermons. And so you could look that up on Sermon Audio. Uh, We posted it on Facebook on Friday. If if you're on Facebook, you can find the link immediately there. But that uh, so powerfully uh, teaches why we preach expositionally, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. One of the benefits on a practical level is that uh, week after week, the pastor's not having to dream up something to say. Uh, You just preach the next verse that comes up in the text. The the problem, though, is that every once in a while, you you finish a book and you have to figure out what to preach next. And so having finished Titus uh, last month, uh, I won't take you through the whole thought process, but I really believe the Lord would have us as a church together study Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I want to give you just a couple reasons as to why this is not just um, 
a random eeny, meeny, miny, mo uh, decision, but it is needed for our church at this time. Philippians is known, as many of you know, uh, as the epistle of joy. And we'll talk about why that is in a moment, but the emphasis on joy in terms of thinking of that as the theme can sometimes mask the reality of the challenges that are going on in Paul's life and also in the life of the Philippian church. Now, it's not totally clear what those challenges are in specifics in the church of Philippi, but it almost seems like Paul writes this letter as a preventative measure rather than a corrective measure, right? We read some of his epistles and he is very clearly correcting the churches about uh, specific doctrines or issues that are going on, false teachers and whatnot. But here he doesn't do that as specifically as he often does. And so it seems as though he's writing more preventatively than correctively. If, if you will, the, the bubbles are starting to show up as the water is being heated. But, and so Paul wants to cool things down before the pot turns into a boil. Well, as I considered uh, where we are as a church uh, at this season of our life, I, I thank the Lord for you all. I thank the Lord for the significant unity and strength that we have as a church. In fact, over the last three years, we have gone through a lot as a local body of Christ. Over three years ago, our senior and founding pastor was given a terminal cancer diagnosis, and that brought us together as a church as we prayed and sought the Lord for healing uh, and His help through that significant trial. In early 2020, COVID hit, and of course that affected every church everywhere. Uh, And that pushed us apart, not relationally so much, but physically. And at a time when there was a lot of turmoil going on in the world and in our nation, and even there was division and different viewpoints among the evangelical church. And so that was a very difficult time. And then in early 2021, as COVID seemed to be on the decline, and it seemed like maybe soon we'd be able to get back to life and church life, especially as normal, the Lord was pleased to promote Pastor League to heaven. Along the way, the Lord moved on to other elders, uh, to other ministry opportunities in other states. And so with all that's gone on in the last three years, I thank the Lord for how he has strengthened us. He has grown us. He has preserved us. He has provided for all of our needs. By God's extraordinary grace, in some ways, we're as strong and healthy as we have, uh, as we've ever been. But that doesn't mean we're perfect. (laughs) That doesn't mean that there aren't any problems or that there aren't any areas of weakness or that we're not, or that we're immune to problems cropping up at any moment. In fact, we know that our adversary, the devil, who constantly prowls around looking for someone to devour, he would love nothing more than for us to rest on our laurels and say, hey, things are going great and be unprepared for spiritual attack. In times of transition, there are always conflicts and challenges that break out and threaten the unity of the church, and those issues must be met with Christian love and the pursuit of unity. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We do that by living out the truths of Paul's letter to Philippians. The theme of Philippians is not joy in some isolated, uh, abstract, esoteric 
concept, the theme of Philippians is this. Rejoice! To live is Christ. To die is gain. My prayer is that over the next number of months, as we walk through this letter, that theme transfers from the pages of your Bible and my Bible and into our hearts. Just this week, there were several moments where I had to stop in life and tell my own soul, rejoice to live as Christ, to die as gain. And Lord, be pleased to make that a mantra even for each one of us in our lives so that we can speak to one another and say to ourselves, no matter what blessings we experience, no matter what challenges we face, rejoice to live as Christ to die is gain. As we have a new pastor applying his experience and skills and gifts over time, there will be changes that will take place and require some adjustment. When the Lord brings a new senior pastor, uh, he will come with his own experience and his gifts and um, skills and changes will come then as well. Just as adding members to the family always changes the dynamics of the home, so it is in the church, and it is in those times of change when we have the opportunity to say, rejoice to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is true in the church, but it will only be true in the church if it is true in each of our own lives, that we embrace this truth in our souls and they characterize us and we live them out each day. Many of you are in the midst of intense trials. There are struggling and hurting marriages in this room. There are struggling parents. Uh, there are financial hardships. There are people enslaved to various forms of sinful behavior. There are conflicts and broken relationships. A number of you are doing the str strenuous work of ca caring for elderly parents. Some of you are longing to expand your family and the Lord has not opened the womb. Trials abound in the lives of those of us in this room. Every kind of trial gives us the opportunity to remind ourselves and one another, rejoice to live is Christ and to die is gain. In this message, I want to introduce this letter by walking through how this theme and the three components of this theme uh, are brought out uh, throughout the letter. And it's my hope that in doing this, that as we start to look at the trees of the forest next week, that we'll have the, the bigger picture in our mind, not just next week, but as we walk through this letter. But before we dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this study. Our Father, as we come to your word, we are cognizant of the fact that uh, we are dependent on you. I am dependent on you to be able to articulate and to speak with clarity and faithfully conveying the truth of your word. And each one of us is dependent on you and your spirit to be able to receive your word, to allow it to, to do its work in our own heart, to not Harden our hearts, but rather to rejoice when your word becomes alive and active in us. 
And so I pray that as we begin today into this new study, that you would use it to accomplish your wonderful purposes in each of our individual lives and in the life of our church as a whole, so that Christ would be glorified in all things. Amen. Well, we read Acts 16 earlier, which is the account of Paul's first visit to Philippi. Paul had no intentions to going to Philippi or the region of Macedonia, as we read at the beginning of that particular chapter. Uh, Paul's life, uh, as many of us know, uh, demonstrates the truth of Proverbs 16.9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. What, what began for Paul as a, a sharp departure from his desires and intentions resulted in fruitful ministry and lifelong friendships. In fact, this letter of Philippians was written about 10 years after Paul first stepped foot in Philippi. And there was a lot that happened between him and then them over those 10 years. For the sake of time, I won't recount all of what we read in Acts 16, but that chapter gives us a, a summary of Paul's initial visit to uh, Philippi from when he entered until he left at the very end of the chapter. We don't know how long he was there. The only measurement of time given in that chapter is the phrase, for many days. So is that weeks? Is that months? We don't know. But it seemed to be enough time for Paul to develop close friendships and relationships with those whom God had brought into the church. And more than that, it was long enough for the gospel to spread such that when the owners of that slave girl who was demon-possessed uh, brought charges against Paul and his, his fellow leaders uh, to the city leaders, they were able to make that credible charge that they are bringing confusion to the whole city. So there was a significant ministry that Paul had over the course of many days. From later in Acts, also from 2 Corinthians, as Paul is writing to other churches, we know that Paul visited Philippi at least three more times over the subsequent 10 years. And when he wasn't able to go, but there was a need for him to communicate with the church, he would send Timothy or others, possibly. And then for their part, the church of Philippi sent Paul money. They supported him in ways that other churches didn't, as Paul had need. But we won't take the time to do a full background of the letter. We'll do more of that next week and as the need comes up as we walk through the letter. But you need to understand as we get started that Paul's relationship to the church of Philippi was intimate. He says things to them like, I have you in my heart. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. When he expresses his internal conflict about wanting to die and go and be with Christ, he weighs the glories of heaven with the desire to visit the Philippians again. That's how deeply he loves them. In considering who he wanted to send to them to minister to them on his behalf until he gets out of prison so he can visit them, he says to them, there's only one person I trust to love you with the same love that I have for you, and that's Timothy. He didn't send just anybody. He wanted someone who would love them the way Paul did. He says to them in the letter, he calls them, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, my beloved. So his relationship to the church seemed to be more intimate than his relationship with other churches. For his part, Paul was in prison in Rome writing this letter. 
He had been in prison for an extended period uh, of time. And while he believes he's going to be released soon, he doesn't know for sure. And so he sends this letter in the meantime. And in light of the challenges that they're facing in the church in the city of Philippi, this is Paul's primary message. He says in chapter 3, verse 17, Brethren, how should, they, how should you respond? He says, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. What is that pattern? It's the lifestyle of responding to trials and challenges with rejoice. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's walk through each of those three components uh, for the rest of this message, beginning with rejoice. The Philippians are commanded by Paul to rejoice four times in this short letter. And the verb rejoice, uh, when, where it's not a command, and the noun joy appear at least 10 more times. In fact, uh, if you exclude the words Lord, Jesus, Christ, and God, rejoice and joy are the top, among the top two words repeated in the letter. And so if we're going to understand what is a right response to trials and difficulties and conflicts, we need to understand this concept of joy and rejoicing because it's not what we often think it is. What does it mean to rejoice or to have joy? What is that? It's one of those words that we, we kind of know it when we see it, but we have a hard time defining it apart from using what seem to be synonyms like celebrate or happy. Maybe you've heard distinctions like happiness is based on temporal circumstances. Joy is based on eternal realities. That's somewhat helpful, but that distinction is incomplete. John Piper offers this definition of joy. You don't have to write this down if you don't want to, but here's how he defines it. Christian joy is a good feeling produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. It's a very good definition. You can find that in an article on the Desiring God website, What is Joy? Or consider this definition by John MacArthur. Joy is a deep-down feeling of well-being that abides in the heart of a person who knows all is well between himself and God. Consider this other definition. Christian joy is marked by celebration and expectation of God's ultimate victory over the powers of sin and darkness, a victory already realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's by scholar Timothy George. There are many definitions that you can find out there that are helpful, that provide good insights and good nuances. But as you can hear, all of those definitions are pretty different. Uh, the substance of what produces joy is distinct in each one of those. As you consider how Paul uses rejoice and joy in the letter of Philippians, none of those definitions really make a, a clear uh, distinction in every use of the term. And so I want to offer a definition of joy and rejoice that we'll use as we walk through this letter over the next six months or so. Here's the definition of joy. Joy is the emotion of delight and strength. 
produced by the Holy Spirit when God's truth is the filter through which we view the issues of life. Let me say that again. I'll repeat it a number of times as, we, as I explain it. Joy is the emotion of delight and strength produced by the Holy Spirit when God's truth is the filter through which we view the issues of life. Let me walk through that. First, joy is an emotion. An emotion. What are emotions? Well, emotions are a visceral reaction. Visceral refers to kind of our, our guts, our internal organs. An emotion is a visceral reaction produced in the, by the heart in the face of circumstances. Uh, if you've taken most of my classes, you know that the heart is the control center of life. It is our soul. It's the locus of our thinking. It's the locus of our affections, our desires, and it's the locus of our will. Or to use this example, thinking, affections, and will are the three chambers of the heart, not the physical heart. I would fail medical school if I said that, but the spiritual heart. In the first chamber of the heart, that's where we think and believe and know things. In the, the second chamber is where we have desires and priorities, where we make value judgments. In the third chamber is where we decide, where we make commitments, where, where we speak and act on the basis of our decisions. And so, as our circumstances flow through those three chambers of the heart, our thinking, our affections, and our will, what comes out are emotions. To use another metaphor, when we, when we look at our circumstances through the, the colored lenses of our thinking, of our affections, and our will, the combination of those lenses in our heart determines the color of our feelings. Or perhaps this will connect with some when the chemical agents combined in our heart are applied to our circumstances, the colors and sounds and smells of that chemical reaction are our emotions. All right, well, those are emotions. Joy is an emotion. Specifically, it's an emotion of delight and an emotion of strength. At times, it feels like joy is, is exciting. It's, it's bubbly. Like when Pastor Dave and Carla pulled up to our house on Thursday night, I was like, yes! Other times, though, joy doesn't have that, that bubbly uh, feeling. Sometimes it's more internal delight, where you're just like, yes, and other people can't see it as much. Along with delight, joy is an emotion of strength, meaning that it is invigorating. It, it gives us energy and strength and enables us to keep going forward. And this is particularly true of joy in times of trouble. For example, when Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18, Speaking of those who are preaching the gospel under false pretenses, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. I don't think he means by that that he's just bubbly and giddy whenever people are preaching Christ with false motives. I think he means that it gives him strength to know that no matter what anybody's motives are, Christ 
is being proclaimed. Or he says in chapter 2, verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And we'll talk about what drink offering and whatnot means, but here's what he's saying in brief. He means that knowing that his life is being spent for the benefit of the Philippians gives him the strength to persevere. Rejoicing is the natural response to pleasant circumstances, right? It's a supernatural response to difficult circumstances. It's normal to delight in God's blessings, uh, to feel that excitement over a new job or a raise or a new baby or some other desirable event, but it's when an undesirable event occurs where we naturally feel sorrow or grief or sadness or maybe even anger and bitterness. But God calls us to respond to painful situations with joy, even if it's mixed with grief or sorrow. And if we're going to do that, it requires supernatural enablement. That's why the definition says that joy is an emotion of delight and strength produced by the Holy Spirit. According to Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the results of walking according to the Spirit are love. What's next? Joy, peace, and so on. So joy, true, lasting Supernatural joy is only possible when we are being led by the Holy Spirit. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not a natural product. Joy is not a superficial expression of happiness. It is a felt experience that occurs when our hearts are controlled by the Spirit who is the Spirit of truth. Now, if joy is an emotion meaning that it's a byproduct of the heart's response to circumstances. And if joy is produced by the Holy Spirit, then how can we be commanded to have joy? Well, that brings us to the final part of our definition. Here it is again. Joy is the emotion of delight and strength produced by the Spirit when God's truth is the filter through which we view the issues of life. In other words, the command to rejoice or to have joy calls us to overlay God's truth over our hearts, our thinking, our desires, and our will, such that God's truth is the filter, not our natural thoughts, desires, and will. So when Paul commands in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say, rejoice. What he means is, renew your mind, conform your thoughts and desires and will to align with God's, and in doing so, you will be able to look at your circumstances with appropriate delight and persevering strength. Again, having joy doesn't mean that we should never be sorrowful or grief or have grief. Joy can be mixed with other emotions, as can many emotions be mixed together. We should sorrow over our sin and the manifestations of sin in the world. 
We should grieve over the loss uh, of uh, loved ones and the loss of things that are God's goodness and blessings in our life. But we can have joy mixed with sorrow and grief when we remember that sin does not have the last word. Sin has been conquered and the grave has been overcome. And so as those who are in Christ, we can can weep over the temporary effects of sin, but we can rejoice at the eternal victory of Christ. Now in Philippians, there are two main truths that will produce joy in us if we view life through them. And we find them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. You can look at that. Philippians 1.21 says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That pithy statement is the basis for almost everything Paul says in this letter. So let's consider the first one, to live is Christ, to live is Christ. This phrase is the shortest possible summary of Paul's theology of the Christian life. What is the Christian life all about? Christ. The one who has been saved by Christ is forgiven by Christ, united to Christ, a co-heir with Christ, indwelled and empowered by Christ. The Christian is ruled by Christ, suffers with Christ, lives for the glory of Christ, is justified by Christ, sanctified to be like Christ, and will one day be glorified with Christ. There's no mistake that the title for those who follow Christ is Christian, which means little Christ. My friends, to live is Christ. But let's zero in on two aspects that Paul emphasizes in this letter. When Paul says to live is Christ, he has in mind that for as long as we live on this earth, we are to live for Christ. Which is to say that we are to live for His purposes and for His glory. In fact, we can't even get three words into the letter without seeing how Paul views his life as being in service to Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. This is the same way Paul referred to himself in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. And we spent an extended time about a year ago looking at what does that mean that we are slaves of Christ. And it simply means this. When we identify ourselves as being slaves of Christ, we affirm the reality that when Jesus took our sin upon himself at the cross, And as a result, received upon himself the punishment our sin deserved, which is the wrath of God. In doing that, Christ purchased us. He redeemed us from the slave market of sin, and now he owns us. He is our master, and we are his slaves. And as such, we we live to serve his purposes and not our own. Well, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, Paul talks about his imprisonment and the effect that it's had on the spread of the gospel. Uh, When we might be tempted to think that having the great apostle Paul stuck in prison for two years would be a great hindrance to the spread of the gospel, Paul thinks very differently. 
his imprisonment allowed the gospel to go into places it wouldn't otherwise go. And it caused others to preach the gospel with more boldness, he says. But there are also some who are preaching with impure motives. They are proclaiming Christ motivated by selfish ambition with a desire to increase Paul's suffering. But Paul had no concern about the things over which he had no control. He was so committed to seeing the gospel of Christ proclaimed and spread that he rejoices even when his enemies do it. He's far more concerned with the purposes of Christ than his own personal interests. In fact, at the end of that section in verse 20, Paul says, he articulates his highest commitment. Look at it. He says that Christ, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So living for Paul meant that his body, whether it's imprisoned in Rome or whether it's outside of prison, traveling freely, proclaiming the gospel, or whether it's in the grave and he is with Christ, whatever the case, his body serves the purpose of exalting Christ. In the next section, in verses 21 to 30, Paul conveys his desire to, to die and to be with Christ. But, but even that compelling desire is tempered by his commitment to serve the purposes of Christ for as long as the Lord allows. If you ever want to know what conviction feels like, you can just ask yourself this question. How much does your desire to stay alive pertain to the, the reason of serving Christ longer as opposed to some other reasons? Well, as we study this letter, we'll have the opportunity to consider uh, our own lives and circumstances and how the Lord would call us to, to reorient our priorities and our preferences around the glory of Christ. To live is Christ. In the beginning of chapter 2 and chapter 4, Paul directs his attention to the presence of conflict and, and disunity in the church. And he doesn't take sides. He doesn't call out those whom he believes to be in the wrong. Instead, he calls all parties to unite under the banner of Christ and to live together in harmony in the Lord. Why? Because that is what Christ calls us to do. Our Lord calls us to unite around a co the common purpose of the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled sinners to himself. And therefore, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel means to pursue reconciliation with one another. Whenever you get two or more sinners together, there's bound to be conflict to some degree or at some point. And so Paul's desire is that believers would reconcile and respond to conflict in a way that reflects how Christ has reconciled us to himself. Why? Because to live is Christ. Another aspect of living for Christ is that our suffering is for Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. This is 
profound statement. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's going to take some time when we get there to contemplate this reality, but here's what Paul is saying. In as much as salvation is a gift from God, and we would all say, yes, amen, give me more. Suffering is a gift from God. To which we would typically say, no, thank you. But it is a gift. And through this letter, we'll see several blessings that suffering brings that enable us to view our suffering in a way that produces joy. Well, consider what Paul says in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, along these lines. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. To use the language of Jesus, Paul was a man who found the pearl of great price. He found that treasure in a field and he got rid of everything he owned so that he could own that precious jewel of Christ. Paul gave up his prestige, his heritage, his hopes for a comfortable life and future. He traded in his pharisaical robes and high reputation for a life of suffering just so that he could know Christ more and be counted among the saints. To live is Christ. To live as Christ means to live for Christ, to serve his purposes. The second emphasis Paul brings out in this letter as to what it means to live as Christ is this. To live as Christ also means to live like Christ. The first emphasis is we are to live for Christ. The second emphasis is we are to live like Christ. We see this emphasis in two particularly significant sections of the letter. The first is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, where he calls the church to unity. In doing so, he exhorts them to adopt the same mindset that Jesus had. Look at verses 5 to 8. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is it that enabled Jesus to travel from the infinite glories of heaven to the dusty roads of first century Rome or Israel? Humility. Humility. Jesus did not count equality with God as something to cling to. God the Son, who dwelled in eternal and in unmitigated glory and unbreakable unity with God the Father and God the Spirit, they enjoyed perfect love and unity and peace. He agreed to the plan of redemption and he left that heavenly glory to take upon himself a human nature and a human body, which he would retain for the rest of eternity. And rather than demanding that the Father choose someone else so that he could stay and enjoy heavenly glory, which he fully deserved, he humbled himself and he gave it up. 
More than that, he didn't demand that his existence on earth reflect his kingly glory, but rather he was born into a poor family and carried the status on par with a slave. To reconcile hostile sinners to himself, he gave up incomprehensible glory. In humility, he left his high and lofty position to become the servant of all. And that is the mindset that we must embrace and live by. There is no possession. There is no position. There is no privilege. There is no preference we should cling to if it prevents us from living in unity with one another. Why? Because to live is Christ. A second passage that highlights how we should live like Christ is chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. You can look there. I'll just read starting in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now listen to this part. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The key phrase in terms of living like Christ is right there in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul wants an increasing knowledge of Christ. He wants to experience the life-generating power to live like Christ. And he wants to have the privilege of suffering with and for Christ. But he knows that the only way to accomplish those things, to achieve those things, is to be conformed to the death of Christ. To be conformed to his death means to die to ourselves in the multifaceted ways in which Jesus died to himself. It's incredible to think that we can have the power to live like Christ. It's humbling to accept the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ. But first, we have to learn to die like Christ. Why? Because to live is Christ. To live as Christ means to live for Christ and to live and even die like Christ. The second truth emphasized in this letter that we need to embrace if we're going to experience joy and rejoice always is not just to live as Christ, but secondly, to die is gain. To die is gain. Going back to chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, but I am hard pressed between, excuse me, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. It's very much better. Now, it's easy to understand why Paul would say that. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life, you know that the one word apt summary of his life is the word suffering. In fact, when the Lord told Ananias to go meet Paul, who had just been saved, the Lord told Ananias, I will show him how he must must suffer for my name's sake. So for Paul, departing and being with Christ was going to be very much better than all the suffering he's experienced 
And the same is true for us. Though we obviously live much more comfortably than most people in history and around the world today, being with Christ in glory is very much better. Because there will be no more suffering. No more death. There will be no more sickness and pain. There will be no more persecution and oppression. There will be nothing that will hinder our service to Christ, which is what we will be doing for all of eternity. In addition to the end of suffering, another reason that dying is gain is because of what we read in that well-known verse of chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Life as a Christian is characterized by the the progressive uh, process of being conformed to the image of Christ. We are being sanctified, which means to become more and more holy as God is holy. As Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, God is working in us both the ability and the desire to live for Him. In fact, a, a primary purpose of trials is that they reveal to us our dependence on God and our need to become more like Christ. But listen, the moment we breathe our last breath, the process of sanctification is instantly complete. Wherever we are in the process, the moment we close our eyes in death and open our eyes in the presence of Christ, that work of growth and sanctification that God began on earth is instantly brought to its completion. When we see Jesus, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And we will no longer experience the presence of sin. The moment we die, we will never again experience guilt of sin, shame, regret, disappointment, despair, confusion. Never again for all eternity will we experience anxiety, fear, anger, lust, greed, depression, pride, or any other sin. To die is gain. We cannot imagine what it will be like to be free from sin. The ravages of sin are so, are so complete in our experience that we, we can't hardly comprehend what it will be like. But we do know this, to die is gain. Well, along with that, another reason that to die is gain, according to chapter 3, verse 20, is that when we die, we will no longer be aliens and strangers, but we will be at home in the place of our citizenship. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humblest state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of His power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. This has long been true in most places around the world, but it is increasingly true that in our own country it is becoming uncomfortable to live as a Christian. It's not that we're being persecuted in any significant way, but the values and priorities and interests of our community are radically different than our own. Our culture flaunts and celebrates immorality and distortions of the most basic human realities. Some of us 
more than others understand what it feels like to feel out of place, like you're not around from around here. But friends, the day will come when those who are saved by Christ will no longer be aliens and strangers because we will be home. We will be with people from every tribe and nation and tongue, but they will be our people. And we will be together as fellow citizens of one kingdom. And there will be no more social faux pas, no more cultural insensitivities, no more miscues of how things are done around here. And because Christ will be king and we will be free from sin, there will be no more irrational thinking. There will be no more injustice. To die is gain. Whatever differences we have that perpetuate into the eternal state, we will live together in perfect harmony with one another in common service to our King of kings and Lord of lords. But to live is Christ and to die is gain. These two truths and all the nuances involved are perspective-shaping realities. As we walk through this letter in the coming months, it, it is my prayer that we will individually and collectively come to see these truths in new and fresh ways. And as a result of doing that, that we will be able to rejoice in all circumstances. May we learn to look at life through these two lenses, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as a result, may the Spirit work in us, that spirit of joy, that we would delight in God's faithfulness and receive His strength to persevere and press forward to all that God has for us. Let's pray and ask for His help. Heavenly Father, as we embark on this study, we need your help. We need your spirit to work in us, to open our eyes, to give us the desires to embrace and live these truths. Lord, may it be true of us that we would be able to look at life not through our own limited perspectives, which is what we we all do, but that we would look through our circumstances through the, the lens of your truth, that we would come to see in a life-transforming way that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that your Spirit would produce joy in us, that we would be known as the happiest people on earth, because we see things the way they really are. And may that then lead to us being a witness for Christ in this region and spreading the gospel in powerful ways for the glory and the exaltation of Christ. We ask these things for his sake. Amen.